0: All right, shout out to everyone who made it through the time zone shift. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it physically. But um, let's say a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your mercy, and it's in Jesus' name we come. We pray that we can follow your son, imitate him, and live as he called us to live, Father. We know some days are easy, some days are not so easy, and yet you have laid down a model for us to follow. And you have given us your spirit to strengthen us to follow you, Father. You've given us community. You've given us scripture. You've given us a hope that we could cling to, even when days are dark, Father. Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for um, his great love for us, that he died for us while we were still enemies. You know, as we approach Easter... The the word hallelujah comes to mind consistently when we think that he is risen, that there is a hope, there is a time that will come one day when it is all done and we get to be in um, eternal fellowship with you and all the other faithful saints throughout all of time, Father. We long for that day, and yet we know you have called us to be radically present to where we are right now as we serve and love others to bring your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so, you know, what we're talking about today is really the model of Jesus' ministry. There are a lot of things we can model Jesus' ministry after, and yet this is one of the most preeminent components of it. Many of you are familiar with the story, A Christmas Carol. I, to confess, I didn't watch that story or hear about that story until... I was following Jesus. I didn't know anything about it. And yet when I started following Jesus, I realized this is a story that a lot of um, followers of Jesus enjoy. And so to give you a quick background, there's a character by the name of Ebenezer Scrooge, and he is a wealthy man and he hates everything. (laughs) He is invited to a dinner with um, his nephew I can't remember his nephew's name. I tried to Wikipedia search it really quickly but couldn't find the nephew's name. But he's invited to the dinner of his nephew and he says no. He had a business partner named Jacob Marley and he died a couple of weeks before and they just were bad men. They were greedy and they did not care about people. So three spirits visit um, Ebenezer Scrooge the the ghost of christmas past the ghost of christmas present the ghost of christmas future and each one of these um spirits shows ebenezer scrooge like man this is how you were living then the ghost of christmas present shows him the different people who are like so happy that he's not around and etc and then the ghost of christmas future is like no one even cares that he died and so he's convicted and he asks the spirit do I have more time And then the next morning he wakes up, he opens up the window, at least the one that came out on um, 1992. That's the one I seen. And he opens up the window and he's like, what day is it? And and he's like, it's Christmas. And he's like, "Ah." And he like gives turkeys to everybody, helps people, etc. And he has a radical change. What Scrooge learned here was, man, my life means so much more when I practice a self-giving love. I think this, the purpose of that story was to help us understand that a self-giving love is what fills our life up. You know, in many ways, Scrooge experienced a new birth. And it's that this heart that all followers of Jesus needs to imitate, that we all practice this, this, this lifestyle of self-giving love. Let's go to Luke chapter 20. So right now we are in Jerusalem Jesus is approaching the cross. This is where a lot of the challenges he's having in his ministries are coming to the forefront. A lot of the things that Luke has been teaching us through the gospel is now starting to be applied by Jesus himself. Jesus and his followers are now having to apply a lot of the things that that Luke had made it his point to teach us throughout the gospel. And we see in this particular part of the story a compare and contrast. To help us understand what Jesus' kingdom is about and how we can easily deviate from that purpose. So in Luke chapter 20, verse 45, we'll pick up. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes, love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogue and place of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, the poor widow has put more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated dedicated to um, God. But Jesus says, as for what you see here, the time will come. When not one stone will be left on another, every one of them will be thrown down. This is this story right here, it, it challenged all of us to expand the circumference of our compassion. This is very challenging, and this is, this is one of the parts of Jesus' ministry I think outsiders love the most, but when you actually try to live it out, it's probably the most challenging part of Jesus' ministry, honestly. A little bit of background. So widows were in that time in the first century. Widows, widows like any any other um, widows, unlike any other groups, were at a huge disadvantage because once they lose their husband, they could potentially lose their property. They were they were consistently in the Roman Empire, even in the Jewish culture, were consistently at threat of deep poverty, and they were the most vulnerable. And so when they say that this woman gave her two copper coins. That Greek word for the copper coins is basically a day's worth of living. She put all, all she had was one day's worth of living, and she put all of it in the temple um, treasury. And you have these wealthy people who are giving out of their gifts. They're giving. Everyone's giving. Jesus observing the giving. And this poor widow said, I'm going to take everything I have, and I'm going to give to this um, temple, temple collection. And again, if you read the Old Covenant, if you've read the Old Covenant, God makes it his point to protect the widow, the foreigner, and the orphan. God's heart is a heart for what we would consider the least of these. We understand that. Again, I think this is a huge part of the message of Jesus that people love. The hardest part of that message is actually being the vehicles through which God establishes that love. So the teachers of the law here, they, they are presented, and Jesus has some scathing words for them. He says, these guys will be punished severely. You see, these teachers of, of the law, Jesus uses the word beware. Beware of the teachers of the law because these guys walk around with an air about them. In the marketplace, in the synagogue, and in the banquet, these areas of social, these social centers of influence, these teachers of the law walk in and would present themselves as important people. And they lived an important life. And so people came to the teachers of the law, teachers of the law, tell me what the scripture says, teacher of the law, show me what this, what is the will of God, how should we think about Rome, how should we do this? And these men were men of influence. And Jesus like, beware of these guys. Beware of these guys. They do these lengthy prayers and they devour widows. Now, I don't know if any of the teachers of law, if we could interview them today, that they were maliciously trying to harm widows. I think what happened to those guys is what, some, what can potentially happen to all of us. And that's simply this. I think within their understanding of God, there was no room for the widow. They just didn't think about them. They just didn't think about them. You know, most of us in here, I don't think anyone here, if you came here this morning, you have malicious intent to any particular people group. You want to be compassionate and loving and show the love of Christ to whoever you come in contact with. However, all of us have a blind spot for people outside our our circumference of compassion. We all have it. We're all guilty of it. And, And why is that the case? That's just the way the world is. We just don't consider who we don't consider. All of us live in a particular community that matches the economic line. So if you live over here, you live all of us are in the same boat. So if I'm living wherever I'm currently living, my neighbor above me makes just about as much money. My neighbor to the left makes just about the same amount. So we're all in kind of the same economic spot. So you're like, well, I'm only worried about what I actually see in front of me. I'm not worried about what I don't see. Very normal. Very normal. All of us do not think about what we don't think about. We don't consider and then, and then even on social media, once you start putting in a different thing on YouTube or you go on um, Twitter, TikTok, it, an algorithm develops, and now you're in your echo chamber. It's only the people who think and look at the world the way you think and look at the world. So you, you're, you're like, wow, we all think the same. The world is actually, there's only one other group of people who don't think like me, but everyone else thinks exactly like me and have the same concerns as me. The world has built itself up to build homogenous communities. That's just how it is. We want people in like-minded communities, like-shaped communities. We just love that stuff because it makes it easier to do community. It makes it easier to be easygoing. And yet Jesus' ministry is radical. Jesus' ministry is a call to all people everywhere to be a part of his community. And in that community is God's remedy for our lack of concern. Because in community with one another, we prayerfully are growing and learning how to care and learn what impacts our brothers and sisters. We need to be gracious. We need to be kind. We need to be filled with conviction because we become a part of Jesus family. And it's Jesus family, not ours. And we allow Jesus to dictate what goes on in this family. And so I suspect these teachers of the law walked into the room and they were like, I'm not worried about what I'm not worried about. All of us in here can relate to that. You don't worry about what you're not worried about. Some of you are environmentalist champions and you're worried about every bit of litter that's on the floor. There's some of you, you don't even notice the litter on the floor. But you're super concerned about the lack of coffee shops that are around. You're like, there's something going on here. There's like a, de- a caffeine um, drop going on. And you notice, know you know where to find all the caffeine shops. And we're praying that you could um, be set free. <laughs> Let's go to Luke chapter 14, verse 12. You see, these teachers of the law, they may have had malicious intent. The, the, the scriptures, if you take all the, the overall witness of the scriptures, for sure they did. But I think for us, this warning probably doesn't come from malicious intent, but rather it comes from a, a, a lack of concern. Luke chapter 14 verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, "When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friend, your friends, your brother or your sisters or your relatives or your rich neighbor. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. You'd be like, "Isn't that awesome?" To get invited back. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Do you know how difficult it is to invite people who you're normally not around? Yeah, <laughs> It's extremely challenging. You really have to go out of your, this, this teaching right here from Jesus in Luke 14, you really have to go out of your way to be like, man, I'm going to actually connect with someone who shouldn't be here. Whatever the situation is, because your brother, your friend, your rich neighbor, if you have one of those, you're like, you're all around me. And, and if you have a rich neighbor, odds are you're a rich neighbor, because usually rich people live next to each other. They don't like, et cetera. But Jesus saying, man, my kingdom is one where I create space for all sort of people. And I want my kingdom people to have that orientation in their head. And so you have these religious leaders who love the important seat. They're in these social centers, like I mentioned before, the market, the synagogue and the banquet. They're revered. They're respected. They, they, no one forgets them. They're never forgotten. You remember what rabbi such and such says. You remember them and they're never forgotten. And yet there is a group of people that are consistently forgotten. Now, again, in, in a room like this, we all have different people we forget. So if you're thinking, yeah, man, these people forget, blah, 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 blah. You're forgetting someone that they care about, too. So let's be careful that we're not judgmental. Let's be careful that's not playing spec. You may forget one group; another person forgets another group. You see, the widow is a cautionary tale for all of us. Now, a couple of disclaimers that's really important. In Matthew's gospel and in, in and in Mark's gospel, the widow is lifted up as an example of giving regardless. Like she is lifted up as an example, something worthy of imitation. And I don't want to take away from that. But Luke is actually giving her story, I believe, for another reason. Luke is giving her story in contrast to these teachers of the law. And this is why they're right next to one another. And so what Luke is trying to help us understand, I believe, is these teachers of the law should have been more concerned that someone who has nothing just gave everything. So she could participate in worship. She just gave everything. Now, for some of us, well, whoa, that's amazing. There is a lot of teachings in Scripture that talks about wisdom and prudence. And again, in other parts, Matthew and Mark, she's lifted up as an example. But here, Jesus is challenging the religious leaders to be like, okay, she gave everything, but what are we going to do for her? How are we going to make sure she can see tomorrow and what she needs tomorrow? He's like, man, look, all the wealth you're giving. No one's even paying attention enough to this widow to realize she gave everything, I bet. I have to believe that there were some people in this area who had a heart, but they just weren't paying attention. Like, you just gave everything you have. I think about giving everything I have. You guys will know I'm I'm a complain. I'm like, I got nothing. <laughs> as soon as I give everything I have, I'm like, I got nothing. What am I do? Help me. Like, you would hear it immediately if I gave everything. There was no way you guys would know. I would totally make it very clear that I gave everything. And if you ask for a little bit more, I'd be like, I already gave everything. That's not her spirit, obviously. She doesn't complain. But it requires a great degree of compassion to notice that someone has given everything. Jesus, the last chapter we talked about um, last Sunday, den of robbers. Jesus gave that indictment to the religious leaders that you guys are a bunch of den of robbers. You've turned God's house instead of a house of prayer to den of robbers. And these guys are watching this poor widow give everything she has. Now, I get it. It's easy not to pay attention. I know money's one of those funny topics. We don't really like talking about money like that. And I think that's one of the most um, threatening sin for most people who live in America. Yep. Greed. Greed is one of the sins that I think all of us need to be very humble about and really look into. Greed has gripped most of us in here, even the least wealthy in here. Have, it, it's materialism and acquiring more and more and more. We're confronted with it every day. I went to the mall yesterday with, with Steven, trying to get him some exercise and stuff like that. It's cold. And I walked in the mall. Someone sprayed me with some perfume. They, <laughs> they told me, didn't I smell good? <laughs> and then they told me the price, and I was like, wow, man, it's only $15. But I don't need to smell good for $15. My soap does the job. <laughs> then there was this little ride Steven could go on, these little toy thingies, and they're like, pay $5 for this, Steven is crying. He didn't even know he needed that until we were there. So they just created a new desire in him. Then we walked by the toy store, my fault, and then he needed more things. And you know, my, 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 my three-year-old is being trained to realize he doesn't have enough. I'm 36 walking in the mall realizing I don't have enough. Like instantly, I was just in there for after 40 minutes. I'm like, we got to get out of here before we transform. <laughs> and I put things on my card that I shouldn't have put on my card, just so I could be a good dad. Stephen walked by. He saw these trains, and he's like, Daddy, what's the trains? And I'm like, I want to give you the trains, but we didn't. You didn't even want the trains until we walked in here. And I'm like, ah, but I want to. I don't want to be the bad dad who don't give him his trains. But I'm like, let's leave. Hopefully, you forget about the trains. And you know what happened 30 minutes later? Forgot about the trains. <laughs> didn't even bring up the trains. I told Jules, I'm like, oh, we didn't, I didn't give him a train, man. You think I should have got him a train? Like, I hate that we can't always give him what he wants, but I want to turn him into a person of character. And then she looks at him. I don't think he's thinking about the train. I'm like, I'm thinking about the train now, man. <laughs> I'm thinking about the train. I feel it in my heart emotionally that I let my son down. But it's because I went to the mall and told me what he had and what we have is not enough. The moth's not concerned about the bills I'm trying to pay and what I got going on. They're like, listen, you need to smell better and you need to get these chains. <laughs> it is easy to lose sight. The poor widow gave everything she had to live on. And the rich did the opposite. They gave from their wealth, but no one took notice of her. But Jesus paid enough attention to know that she had given everything. I think her religious leaders somewhere along the line, they lost plot of the story, lost plot of what God was doing, lost plot of what it meant for Israel to be a light to the nation. That happens in so many ways. In this room, it's easy to care about one another, but yet that call for compassion is also supposed to extend in everything that we do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, titles, income, and rank, these are things that even in the scriptures, God has given people titles, income, rank, and yet... Those titles, incomes, and rank may come with a degree of influence, a degree of responsibility, but it doesn't make anyone superior to anyone else. And that's very important that we understand that. You see, these teachers of the law might have been like, I'm a teacher of the law. What are you talking about? I don't work with the widows. That's just not what I do. Someone else does that. You might say... I'm a branch manager at X, Y, and Z branch. I don't care about what's going on with the lower lower management and what people are doing there and their needs. They signed on for this contract. That's their fault, blah, blah, blah. It's easy to be like the rest of the world. It's so easy to think that our titles make us superior, that we don't have to care about their concerns. And yet Jesus is saying it's the complete opposite. Those sort of people should be the people who care the most. You see, the religious establishment that she was giving to The reason I read verse 5 and 6 is the very thing she gave to, Jesus said it would be destroyed in a couple of years. Can you imagine giving everything you have, everything you need to live on to something that's about to get destroyed that Jesus already condemned? Jesus is like, man, I'm already done with this place already. And this poor widow... Just gave everything she has, and I'm going to wreck and destroy this place. This is, this is a call in so many ways to that sheep and goat parable, like pay attention, pay attention. But the challenge with the sheep and goat parable is you can't be a mercenary. You can't be like, I'm giving so God can take care of me. Once you start thinking like that, you're still a goat. You have to give because you care. You have to give because you love. You have to be a person of self-giving love. You see, the temptation to imitate the teachers of the law is really real for his disciples, and honestly, I think for all of us, all people of esteem. Let's go to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 41. All of us can struggle with this if we're being sober with ourselves. Some of us struggle with it more blatantly than others, but all of us can struggle with this. Mark chapter 10, verse 41 when the 10, so a little context here, James and John reached out to their mom and said, hey, mom, get us some important seats with Jesus, man. Like, we're trying to be big shots. And so the mom was like, uh, sure. Hey <laughs> Jesus, let one of my boys sit here, sit there. Okay, verse, um, chapter 10, verse 41. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. Jesus' followers, not just in a in an intimate setting like this in a church should have this as their mindset. Even if you're the most important person at your job, you still walk in with a servant mindset. You know, um, I was reading the Harvest Business Journal. Now, I never read this journal, but I just put in Google search like servant leadership from a secular perspective, and this is the first thing that came up. And so anyhow, I'm reading the journal, and there is a number of material out there that doesn't give any credit to Jesus that are like, you know what the best type of leadership is? Servant leadership. Be the last one to eat. Be the last one to give. They were talking about some companies that did really well during the pandemic. Most of those companies that did really well, the CEO was the only one who took a pay cut. And he took a pay cut so other people in his company not lose any money. And you had those employees work even harder. And, and so clearly you don't even need the Holy Spirit to put the principles of Jesus into practice and see the benefit of it. But the teachers of the law here, just like all of us, sometimes we start to, you know, get on our high horse. We're like, I don't I don't get down and do that kind of stuff. I don't think about that kind of stuff. Most of us are walking into our workplaces and we seldomly even think about who's being taken advantage of at the workplace. Most of us walk into our, our social settings. We go to no one goes to bowling alleys anymore, but let's just say they did. You go to the bowling alley, you don't realize what's going on over there. Okay, some people still go to the bowling alley and I offended you. And, and, and may may God's grace be with me and with you. You know you're the only one in the bowling alley too. So, <laughs> but it requires it requires us to decenter ourselves if we're actually going to be servants. You walk into a room, you wake up in the morning, the most important person you think about is yourself. If you're a little altruistic, you may think about your family, but really, Jesus is calling us to think about others. Period. Which is challenging because what's what's the fear? If no one thinks about me, who's going to take care of me? And people take advantage of people, and we don't want to get taken advantage of. And yet, this is one of this. Is why I said this is challenging to put into practice. This is an act of faith to consider the needs of other people. <clears throat> you guys are all familiar with Mother Teresa. Any of you who've ever done a great degree of research on Mother Teresa knows her story is actually really complex and tragic. Um, but her example is powerful. And I want to share about that example. Mother Teresa in Calcutta, when everyone would get the best shoes, the, the, the different people she worked in a leopards colony, where you know any of you who are familiar with leprosy knows that's just a radical skin disease, and it does things to your bones and to your joints and to, it, just, it just destroys your body. They would get shoe donations, and Mother Teresa would make it her point that the leopards got first dibbed, and the other um, nuns in the abbey got the next dib, and she took the worst shoes consistently and so this one person who was working with Mother Teresa one day saw her take off her shoes, and he was like her toes looked like they got wrecked 10,000 times all day, every day. That wasn't his exact phrase, but it was like he kind of described it. It looked like something horrible happened to her feet. And so he courageously said, Mother Teresa, what happened to your feet? And then she's like, I haven't worn the right pair of shoes in a long time. There was a situation, this person was interning with Mother Teresa. There was a situation where there wasn't enough food, so the, the people in the leopards kind of got food, and then it was down to the few... Um, all the volunteers who came to serve with her for the summer internship got food. And then it was the, um, the nuns who got food. And that night, for the next three nights, she didn't eat. And so the, the guy approached Mother Teresa and was like, oh, are you fasting? And then she's like, if loving people is fasting, then yes. And then one of the other, one of the other nuns was like, we're trying to get her to eat, but she just wants to make sure everyone has enough. And you, you hear that and you're like, man, that's why we still talk about her. Again, her story is tragic as well. There, there's, there's some stuff, she wasn't Jesus, and so she made some mistakes. But her story is an example of decentering yourself. If you would have talked to Mother Teresa whenever she started this journey, she would have never told you she was trying to be Mother Teresa. She was like, I'm just trying to love. I'm just trying to love the person next to me. There is a prayer attributed to a saint called Francis, that I think is really important. And it helps kind of with the mindset of decentering. It says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved. That's to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. This is a prayer of decentering, Because Lord knows we all want to be consoled. Lord knows we all want to be understood. But St. Francis is praying this prayer like, let me just do it for you. Because I realize what you're going to do for me, God. You're going to see me. You're, you see me. You've never lost sight of me. You see, the teachings of Jesus transform history radically. It transformed, it transformed our history radically on how we view the poor. Now I know some of you, you're probably like, not just the poor, but all people on the margins, etc. Yes, yes. This principle applies to all people who are not being considered for sure. But in the particular text, we're talking about the poor widow. So please have grace that I'm not mentioning every single people group that's on the margins. What do you deserve if you are made in the image of God? That's what this that's what this passage is challenging here. What do you deserve if you are made in the image of God? Even better question. Since you are so loved by Jesus that he died for you, what do you deserve? You see. That the rich had a duty to give to the poor was, of course, a principle as old as Christianity itself. What no one had thought to argue before, though, was that was a matching principle, that the poor had an entitlement to the necessity of life. It was, in formulation, increasingly deployed by canon lawyers, a human right. Tom Holland is talking about how it went from let's do good to the poor to Christianity changed, like the poor have an entitlement to whatever we call the good life because they're made in the image of God and Jesus died for them. That is a completely different way of looking at it. It goes from one to I'm being a blessing to another. This is what's right before God. It becomes a justice issue. You see, the scriptures call us to bring the kingdom of God today. But that requires seeing the world the way Jesus saw it and committing to being a partner with him and changing this world. So, how can we expand our circumference of compassion? Fellowship. Here's a quote from Clement of Alexandria. He was an early church father. That means he did his thing in the second century. Luke chapter 12, verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purse for yourself that that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. The challenge is to keep this on our minds even when we're not able to. How do we keep this on our minds even when we're not able to? Here's the quote from Clement of Alexandria. It is said, I want mercy, not sacrifice. By the merciful, he means not only those who do acts of mercy, but those who desire to do them yet are unable. Nevertheless, they do whatever they can. For sometimes we truly desire to provide mercy to someone by a gift of money or personal attention. Sometimes we truly want to assist someone in need, help someone who is sick or stand by someone who is in an emergency. However, sometimes we're unable to carry out our desires because of poverty, disease or old age. It is is speaking to a real reality. Some of you might be moved and you're like, man, I barely got anything and I'm going to go take my widow approach and I'm going to give everything I have and go from there. Maybe you're not the person in this season right now that God is calling to be that way. However, the desire is what I'm trying to encourage you to have. The desire to want to help someone, the desire to want to grow in this area. No one needs to be a finished product. We just want We have to desire it, but I think, again, it goes to we don't even consider what we don't consider. We don't slow down enough to consider what we consider. So what can we do? We could save money. We could do a different, a, whole, a whole host of things once the desire is there. Once the desire is there, I believe our imagination will spark and will be able to be a blessing. And we have to use our discernment. Another quote from a church father, Tertullian. Though, though we have our treasure chest, it is not made up of purchase money as of a religion that has its price. Rather, on the monthly day, if he likes each, puts a small donation, but if only if it's his pleasure and only if he is able, for there's no compulsion, all is voluntary. These gifts are to support and bury poor people, to supply the needs for boys and girls destitute of means and parents, and of old persons now confined to their home. These gifts also help those who have suffered shipwrecks. And if there happens to be any of us in the mines or banished in the islands or shut up in prison. For no reason other than their faithfulness to the cause of God's church, they become nurslings of their confession. Tertullian is like, I think sometimes we can do the secular, um, secular sacred thing, right? I'm going to help the church. Anyone else out there? Amen. God bless. And there is a pecking order. Paul talks about in um, Galatians, do especially good to the household of God, for sure. But Tertullian is like, man, if you lost a ship, I want to help you. If you are unable to be buried because you're poor, I want to help your family to put you and give you a proper burial. Expanding the circumference of our of our imagination and our love requires self-giving love. Because when we give, we lose something. When you give money, you lose money. Yeah. When you give of your time, you lose that time. You could be easily be doing, it, doing something else. And yet the call here is to be a people who grow in our desire to imitate christ you know one of the things that julie and i are still wrestling with we want to set aside a budget this is just our family and i won't ever let you know what, where i'm gonna give it to but we want to set aside a budget to be a huge blessing there's a couple of areas that i am consistently confronted with that i hear are challenges how many people have taken a whole calendar year off because they couldn't afford school and I want to be able to be like, man, you know, Joel's and I set aside the budget. And man, we prayed about it. You're the right person. And we give them the money so they could go to some school for the whole calendar year. And the next thing you know, they drop out is take the money and do whatever. And I'm like, you know what? That was a gift to God. If they did that, I would struggle a little bit. But I'm like, that is a gift to God because I wanted to help them. I wanted to serve them. You know, I, And I know we, we have to be careful with money because things are tricky. But even in some of our community groups, I don't know the legality of this. I wish AJ was here because I know he knows the legality of it. He might be shaking his head. You ain't going to tell the community groups to collect money. and So maybe we can't. But like, even if we did that in a, in, a, in a righteous and legal way to be able to be a blessing to certain things that we can't. We do benevolence, which is awesome. But sometimes the red tape and everything, we just want to be able to give more quickly. But that requires self-giving love. It requires to say, if I'm going to give to this, then I mean I'm not giving to something else that I want to give. How do we view our money? You see, the teachers of the law walked in with flowing robes and important seats. And they probably did everything else to make sure that they had the flowing robes and were able to be people of preeminence. But we want to be people who give and give, especially not to something that's falling apart. Self-giving love. Mark 10 is alluding to this concept of self-giving love. Theologians call this cruciformity, a life shaped by the cross. The way of life that Jesus has described is one of self-giving love. Self-giving love describes a life formed and inspired by the crucifixion of Jesus. What got Jesus killed? How did he live his life? Jesus lived and served in such a way that it got him killed. That's cruciformity. That's self-giving love. By values and practices, we need to imitate the values and practices of Jesus, even if it leads us to a cross, which is terrifying. And yet we know the hope that we have. The cross is not only our source of salvation, but it's also our shape of salvation. How we should think about salvation is a self-giving love for all Christians. That means we practice the virtues and practices that Jesus did. Faithfulness, love, and using our power for um, the benefit of others. And and, and calling and helping people to see the kingdom and pursuing a biblical understanding of justice. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 5. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the heaven. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In verse 5, when he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That is so loaded. Um, uh, A scholar by the name of Michael J. Gorman unpacks this really well. He says, cultivate this mindset, this way of thinking, feeling, and acting in your community, which in fact is a community in the Messiah, Jesus. Cultivate this mindset, a way of thinking, feeling, and acting. When he says, have the same mindset as Jesus, think the way Jesus thinks about it, feel the way Jesus feels about this, act the way Jesus would act about it. And how did Jesus act? He did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. Jesus was not in the business of clutching power. You see, the teachers of the law probably wanted to clutch power. Anytime we get near power, that's what it does. Power grabs us. Power is adjacent. Power pulls us in. But Jesus, when he got near power, he let it go. He let it go. He just didn't grab or clutch for power, which is so countercultural in this community and in this world. You know, most of us, we thirst for water. But when we get near power, we start thirsting for power. We thirst for status. We thirst for influence. I'm not an influencer at all, right? At all. I remember I posted a picture of Stephen when he was first born on Instagram. I only got like five pictures on Instagram. I'm not even on there. Anyhow, I posted a picture of Stephen, and I got like 70 likes. And I didn't turn off the notification. You know how fired up I felt? I was like, whoa. even though they were liking the picture of my son, it was cool. Then I posted, I posted a picture of what I was reading, five likes. It felt a little devastating. I'm like, where are those people? They care about my son. They don't care what I'm learning. I wanted more. I remember telling Jules, like, what do you think I have to do to get 70 more likes? She's like, why do you care? I'm like, I don't know, but I care. <laughs> what do I have to do? I got near. I got 70. That's the most likes I've ever gotten in my entire life. Now, some of you who get 1,000 likes consistently, you're praying for me. You're like, dang, no one likes you. But for me, that was a lot. And I remember talking to Jules about it. I'm like, man, what do you think I have to do? And she's like, well, you have to post more consistently. You have to like people's stuff. And I saw how much work I had to do to get likes. I'm like, I don't want the likes. I'm going back into the shadows. <laughs> and I haven't returned since. But that's one thing. But again, even influ- influencing the church, right? You, you, be, you get a title. You get a title evangelist. You get a title elder. You get a title teacher. You get a title shepherd. You get a title deacon. You start to be like, oh, wow, man. You know who you're talking to? You know, you, you know who I am? I'm evangelist. <laughs> like, everyone in here is like, I don't care. Your and you're like, I do care. It's a big deal. Like, I'm a big shot. Like, what's wrong with you? But we do it at work. You get a promotion. You get your own parking spot. It says your name right there. You walk in, and one day there's snow piling, and they put all the snow in your parking spot. (laughs) And you're like, how dare you put it in my spot? What about this CEO right here or this lower person? Why do they got spots? Like, I think we get close to power, and we try to acquire it. It is dangerous. And Jesus saying, man, this Philippian hymns is Jesus let it go. He could have grabbed power from God and said, God, I'm your equal. But he said, you know what, God? Even though I'm fully divine, I let it go. And that becomes a model for all the believers in Christ. Now, you might be saying to yourself, I have no power. Even let that go. Even let that go. You're like, well, no one listen. Even let that go. Walk into the room and be like, man, self given love. I'm going to seek to serve first. I'm going to seek to give first. You see, it's hard. It's hard once you get some power. And all of us have seen people on power trips. I've been guilty of it. I was captain of my basketball team. And I said, we didn't have a good practice. And I was like, guys, we're going to practice at 11 p.m. Only three people showed up. I told the coach we need to kick all these guys off the team. And then, you know, what happened to me? I got demoted. (laughs) I lost my captainship within two weeks. And, you know, he told me, he's like, you don't love people. Coach Marv, he been, he's teaching me stuff even in his grave, man. I'm still learning a lot from this dude. As more and more I think about him and reflect on some of the things that I thought was just weird, I'm like, man, you are so Christian. Um, seriously, like, you know, when you're 16, you like, you don't know where this is coming from. You just think he's just a weird dude. Now I'm like, oh man, he was just in the scriptures. But again, some of us we acquire power, we acquire influence. And and, and we've heard the saying, like, you forgot where you came from. What that really just means is you just are on an ego trip. You're going to end up like the teachers of the law if you're not careful. Maybe not in this room, but maybe in the rooms you have influence. Maybe in the rooms where you actually have influence, you turn to someone where people look like, I would have never known you known Jesus. I would have never known you were familiar with who Jesus is. You know, in our workplace, in our relationships, in our social circles, do we... Practice the spirit of Christ. And again, I know none of us are perfect. I'm not perfect at this. I may not come into a room and try to acquire the power, but I'm not also walking into a room trying to um, be great. You know, if Jesus didn't put that qualifier, you want to be great in the kingdom, serve. If he would have said this is just the expectation for everyone, I would have did it. But when he's like, be great, I'm like, I don't know if I want to be great. That's, the, that's what happens when you're a C student. You're <laughs> like, I just want to pass the class. <laughs> I want to move on. There's certain things I do want to be great at, and I want to be great consistently. So I'm pray, pray for me to grow in that character that in all things I want to honor God, 100%. But I'll be honest, sometimes I'm like, I don't want to be great in this area. I just, just want to be good enough. Good enough works. But the goal is all things. So what gave the early church... What gave the early Christians integrity was the fact that they could denounce the empire, the Roman world, and in the same breath say, we have another way of living. If you're tired of what the empire has to offer, we invite you into the way. Even the pagan emperors could not ignore the little revolution of love. Emperor Julian confessed "The godless Galilean feeds our poor in addition to their own. And the way had little cells multiplying all over the empire. Of course, everyone was forewarned that in this kingdom, everything was backwards and upside down. The last are first and the first are last. The poor are blessed and the mighty are cast down from their throne. Yet people were attracted to it. They were ready for something different from what the empire had to offer. That's Shane Claiborne speaking here when he reflects on the early church. I think the world wants to see something different. How do we engage with power and influence? They want to see something different. Even when we don't have it, how do we still engage with whatever influence and power that we have? They want to see something different. I want to be something different to the glory of God. Amen. He who has this hope and has adopted this true life, if he is ready to abandon luxury as some, has something treacherous, must not only cultivate a simple mode of living, but also style of speech that is free from verbosity and insincerity. I love what Clement of Alexandria says here, cultivate a simple mode of living. You know, After Easter, we're gonna talk about spiritual formation. There is a cultivation that needs to take place in our own hearts, in our own minds, and especially in our bodies that could get us to be the people that God wants. I think if we are the people that God wants, then God will be able to use his people the way he wants for his purposes and his glory. You know, people always ask me, man, what's the goal of the church? What's the what's our plan to be whatever God is calling us to do and to follow the spirit? Steve, that's not tangible. Okay, let me make it more tangible to be what God is calling us to do and follow the spirit today. That's the goal. That's the plan. That's always been the goal. Someone asked me what the theme was. Follow Jesus. What's the theme going to be next week? Follow Jesus next year. Follow Jesus. I just want us to follow Jesus. I just want to follow Jesus. And I know that comes with other components, and we have to do all these other things to cultivate an atmosphere to where we can follow Jesus. And that's what I'm laboring in, and that's what I know a lot of you are laboring for. But that's the goal. Self-giving love is how we all, all of our Christianity should look like, a Christianity of self-giving love. Let's reflect on um, what we talked about. Again, maybe you heard something, and you're like, man, I just need to change this. I need to start praying about this. Maybe you disagreed with everything I just said and you want to fight me, then pray about your heart. I will not fight you. I will call police on you. In Christ. Um, But seriously, let's reflect. Think about it. Maybe there's some decisions that need to get made. Maybe a simple amen.